1880, the financial sector share of U.S. GDP was slightly over 1%. By 2009, however, it had grown close to 10%. Including the related industries of insurance and real estate, that share swells to 21% in 2019, making it the single largest segment of the American economy, followed by trade and transport at 15% and professional services at 13 Not until fourth place do we find manufacturing at 11%, down from close to 35% in the 1940s for a country that once outproduced all others and whose chief export today is government promises to pay in the future. With the meltdowns in the financial markets over the past several decades and the increasingly large government interventions to rescue and prop them up, political blogger Z-Man joins us to discuss how sustainable this is and its ramifications for society going forward. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we have a very special guest who has come on once before, uh, but today we have a special topic that uh, the Z uh, the Z man has uh, some experience in. Uh, we're broadly going to be discussing financialization. It's sort of a broad term, obviously, but I think it touches upon the fact that the U.S. economy has increasingly become dominated by the financial sector. Uh, as a share of GDP uh, in terms of its outsized influence over the political system and society as a whole, and even the culture, if you just look at our movies. Um, and Z has a background, actually, in uh, in this field uh, in the past. Uh, and obviously, he has a very uh, successful and well-known blog in the dissident sphere. Uh, so we thought this would be a very good opportunity to ask him uh, what he thinks about financialization uh, why it's uh, it's become such a big deal, um, and I guess maybe a way to sort of cue it off. I, Z, I, I remember you had written an article um, a month or so ago, and then I think actually a couple people have uh, actually asked you about it uh, after the fact because it was very provocative of a of a, a notion that America, uh, as sort of an analogy, historical analogy, is actually more in parallel to Greece than to Rome. And a lot of people compare America to Rome because of the way the currency was devalued, uh, there was uh, inflation, things like that. And we've seen that in the United States historically. And I think we still have inflation, it's just more hidden or it's more uh, isolated to certain sectors like real estate. Uh, they, they often call the modern economy, the fire economy, the finance, uh, insurance and real estate economy. And if you look at education as well, like that's where a lot of the, and healthcare, that's where a lot of the price increases have happened uh, as opposed to the other sectors. We can get into the details on why that is maybe later. Uh, but with Greece, I know they had a very briefly lived empire. Uh, and 
I don't know if any of it has to do with uh, with finance, but I, the Roman America parallel, I think you could argue, has a lot to do with that and how maybe Rome fell apart. Um, but maybe you could give some of our listeners who haven't heard you before, maybe give your take on the parallels between ancient Greece and, uh, and America today, uh, and then talk about your perspective of, of the finance sector. Well, it, it's an interesting uh, thing. I, I didn't really cover the finance side. Now I wish I did. So maybe I'll come back to that topic in another post one of these days. But, uh, you know, one aspect of uh, the, uh, the ancient Greeks that gets lost is they were really, I, I would think, one of the first financial empires. Because one of the things they did is that they figured out that, hey, we, we need to be able to pool our finances, all these city-states that became part of, uh, I think it was the Delian League. I always get the names mixed up. But the you know in their battles with, with Persia, they figured out that, hey, we've got to pool our resources. So some of the city-states didn't have men, but they had money. And others, of course, could uh, contribute uh, ships or you know, weapons or swords or metal or whatever. So what they did is they centralized the finances. So everyone kicked in money into this, this, this kitty, and the money was, was held and then, the, uh, uh, and then distributed out for uh, war fighting, you know, to you know, put uh, men in ships and put ships in the water and all that stuff. Well, the Athenians were actually pretty clever, and they figured out if they got control of the money and they got control of the, of the, of the men, the, the, the navy, well, then they could, they could control all of these city-states. So basically what they slowly did is, is shifted this system of everybody kicking in what they could, you know, from everyone what they can and, you know, to everyone what they need. They slowly shifted that away to actual control of this treasury. So they provided the men. They provided the, you know, used the money to buy ships and, and the resources they needed. And everyone else was essentially taxed. And so they controlled the, with their navy, all the shipping and so these these city states were now locked into the Athenian Empire. So it was a really the, one of the first ways that I know of, where you use finance and control the money supply to control your neighbors. You know they didn't actually have to worry about conquering these people; they could just starve them out. So there's another another comparison there because we do the same thing. I mean, basically, you know, the old dollar diplomacy stuff. But you know, the Athenians were, you know, they, they didn't see themselves as an empire. It's one of the weird things when you when you read about it. They didn't look at themselves as an empire. When they were faced off against the the Spartans, you know, they they saw it as a much more of a, a cultural issue. You know, this was democracy versus their the uh, Spartan form of autocracy, and they didn't think of themselves as an empire. And and we don't either. Amer- Americans, when you talk about the American Empire, to to like normie pe- type people, you know, civic nationalist types, even even left wingers. They look at you like you're you're uh, you've lost your marbles, you know, and and it, and we have the same problem. You know, I, I remember I, you, I don't know if you guys, yeah, I'm 54, so I my my memory goes back, I don't know, 30 years, uh, 35 years, pretty reliably, but in so 20 years ago uh, was it uh, the Bush years, when the the plan was to invade Iraq. And Colin Powell gets sent out to give this speech about how America is not an empire. It only it goes out to defend freedom and spread democracy. And all it asks is for a place to to bury its dead. And he gives a speech and the French foreign minister is looking at him like, are you out of your bleeping mind? <laughs> of course you're an empire. <laughs> That's why you're here. You're going to tell us what you're going to do. But Americans ate that up. It was a glorious speech and you know, it, everyone loved it. So in a lot of ways, I think culturally we're very much like the Athenians were. And I think, you know, we, the Athenians were a, 
basically a financial empire. So, I mean, it, you know, historical comparisons are never perfect, you know, but it's, and I, I thought it was useful because I, I kind of hate the Roman uh, comparisons because they're overdone. And uh, it's always a good opportunity to change the subject and talk about the Greeks because the Greeks are, I think, much more interesting than the Romans. Uh, the Romans were, I don't know, they were a little bit too pragmatic for my taste, I suppose. Well, one of the, one of the interesting comparisons I think you can make to the Greeks in modern America uh, you know, the, the Peloponnesian Peninsula and maybe the wider Greek world at their height, which included much of uh, Sis, what's now Sicily, of course, the great city of Syracuse, uh, included much of Crete. Uh, Levant is, you know, deep inland of Anatolia, Black Sea regions. Uh, I mean, the Greeks at one point had this massive trading route where they were deliver they were attaining grain from the upper coasts of the Black Sea for several months a year uh, and delivering it to Egypt for Egyptian um, bread and beer production and mead production. Uh, they, you know, they had these wide ranging city states. They had a, some general distinctions between them, uh, but they, you know, saw themselves all as fundamentally, uh, you know, sons of Hellas, I guess. Uh, but if you compare it to modern America, we have these far-flung uh, city-states across a continent, effectively. We have, uh, you know, a city-state in the Hawaiian Islands. We have uh, a very small uh, sort of fledgling city-state as far north as Alaska, and we have them spread out across a 3,000, 3, almost 4,000 stretch of territory. Um, and not much in between is being prioritized the way it, uh, it used to. And what's interesting about, uh, you know, beginning of Greek civilization after the death of the Mycenaeans and the Bronze Age collapse, um, they were effectively invaders from the north. They were, you know, the Doric invaders. And they uh, they took over and they were very pastoral and, and very humble people that lived on the plains and lived in the valleys and were fishermen. And slowly over time built these fantastic cities that they all isolated themselves in. Um, and the entire economy revolved around the activities of these cities and the cities competed for one another. You see that now you have different cities effectively trying to attract the same companies with Amazon offering all sorts of different um, goodie packages and subsidies and tax write-offs and uh, you know all kinds of infrastructure. And uh, you know, this sort of led to their ultimate demise because uh, I think not only did they become mostly a financial empire, the Greek uh, fishermen and the Greek farmers and the Greek horse herders um, kind of fell by the wayside, and especially after the Peloponnesian War were depopulated, um, but they just lost the sense of themselves and became so enamored and wrapped up in their sprawling network of city-states and these uh, complex trade routes that they envisioned as the future of their economy. You know, the economy was not going to revolve around um, engineering advances, scientific advances. The economy would be trade, it would be philosophical, it would be more sophisticated. They fancied themselves as having a more sophisticated type of political economy, which was part of the reason why the Spartan model was so off-putting, I think, at the end for uh, many Greeks because the Spartans represented the old Greek uh, political economy, which was hard labor, uh, bronze weapon casting, uh, you know, uh, 
prioritizing farming, prioritizing military advancement on land, not at sea. And this was sort of an affront to the uh, post, nearly post golden age, where they, uh, you can think of it like almost like the post 60s era uh, for Greece when they started to decline. And that's really when they morphed into a, uh, a financial trade, almost mercantilist with no industry empire and it and you know it was very you can see very quickly why after the Peloponnesian War there was almost nothing to rebuild Greece with and they were so easily uh, swept aside by uh, the Romans who of course ended up making many of the the same mistakes uh, later on but came from similar humble origins were farmers and landed weapon casters uh, who moved into engineering and then eventually were uh, were uh, defeated. Well, you know, there, there's also the uh, uh, there's a lot. It's funny as you're talking, it kind of occurred to me that you know there's some, there's some other great parallels we could draw. Uh, you know, when I lived in Boston, uh, there were still people around who called it the the Athens of America, and you know the Civil War would be the Athenians versus the Spartans. You know, you have this southern economy that's based on slave labor, agriculture, very old world, very you know pre-modern in, in many ways. And you have the you know the much much more modern north, uh, much more culturally sophisticated, at least in, from their perspective. And of course, you know that what did in the uh, Athenians at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War was a was a plague that hit Athens. <laughs> so you know we're in the middle of a uh, <laughs> of a plague right now. You know, it's, I mean, it's it's you know historical analogies are fun. And and so and they're useful though for two reasons. One, obviously they give you you hope to give you insights into today, but in, in some ways they they're good for giving you insights into the past. You know, I, I did one on uh, I did a post on uh, sophistry on the sophist, and I used um, I used Stefan Molyneux as an example, as to try and, and you know flipped it around to say what it was like to be an Athenian and in in the, you know, great, these great example. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, and, and it's useful because it kind of it brings brings history to life. You know. Well, let's let's talk about what exactly the elephant in the room is, uh, and it, it's difficult to paint a picture because finance is almost by definition something you can't really see. It's about something that money, which represents a claim on something else. So it's not something that's that's immediately understood in a visual sense, but it if you if you know accounting or if you study economics or anything like that, you notice that the banking sector has uh, really just swallowed up a huge amount of GDP. Uh, and anecdotally, you can see that there is, again, there's a lot of influence over the public policy decisions in accordance with what the people in Wall Street want. It means you can go right to the picks from all the different uh, presidencies, how they consistently recruit people into their cabinet from places like Goldman Sachs and the top donors are typically these types of institutions. Uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, I, I believe, gave very, um, very many multi uh, six figure speeches, quote unquote, at places like Goldman Sachs for obvious reasons for uh, promising favors in exchange for money. And uh, when they get into office, typically they they will give these guys what they want. I think one of the biggest reforms that I think came about uh, during the Clintons, as we're talking about them, was uh, the Glass-Steagall rollback. Uh, I think this was uh, 
the late 90s and it was I think pushed by Citigroup where they were trying to allow consolidation in the banking sector and also the merging of the investment banks with the commercial banks and I've always thought that was somewhat of an arbitrary distinction but in in broad terms a commercial bank is supposed to focus on very conservative safe investments like housing which didn't turn out to be so safe uh, and investment banks are supposed to be more speculative in terms of new industries new companies things like that Uh, but we've seen a lot of the economy reshaped around the financial sector i think another good example is how people can write off uh, the mortgage payments on their taxes Uh, and that's just a direct subsidy uh, two, in some ways, the the American citizen who owns a house, but also it's a it's a big subsidy to the banking sector because that's where they make a lot of their money. It's really mortgage finance. Uh, so, to me, that's what financialization is. It's sort of the crowding out of other industries. Uh, America used to be a, a truly uh, industrial superpower uh, with a positive balance of trade, and now things have completely reversed, whereby we're going into debt to the tune of close to a trillion dollars a year uh, in borrowing from other countries because we don't produce enough to sell back to them. So we end up sending them IOUs, promises, primarily in the form of U.S. treasuries historically. But I think that's actually started to turn into direct real estate purchases on the coasts from places like China. Uh, And then if you go to New York, I mean, talk about Donald Trump. I mean, his probably a big chunk of his real estate has been actually sold off to some of these exporting countries' uh, wealthiest uh, people, uh, namely like Saudi Arabia, uh, China as well, uh, and then a a smattering of other countries that uh, make a lot of money off of uh, American dollars being exported. So I think that's financialization. Uh, But Z, you worked in this industry, and you you would know, I think, the mechanics better than all of us. So what, what do you think is at play here? I mean, I just sort of read the headlines and and see the moves and I sort of put these pieces together in my mind. But what is actually going on in your view? Well, I think, you know, the there was uh, currency reforms in uh, the 1980s. You had first, uh, I think it was the Palace Accords and then the Louvre Accords that set up the currency arrangements around the world because you had these these currency wars, these these battles. And we went off the gold standard where we ended the Bretton Woods uh, it, uh, the Bretton Woods Accords pretty much came to an end. I think uh, Nixon did that in 70 70, or 72. 71, I think. 71, something like that, yeah. And, and of course, the reason was is that you know they had this agreement that was basically for the dollar to essentially be the, the uh, reserve currency, but the French were, were screwing around trying to raid uh, our gold reserves, and we got down, I think, to 22% or something like that, and finally Nixon just pulled the plug on it out of necessity, and that caused a huge crisis, and and the result of this was a, a deliberate devaluation of the U.S. dollar at, with the Palace Accords, and then finally a further uh, devaluation in the Louvre Accords. But also this agreement to kind of keep these uh, the exchange rates, you know, and, and avoid you know have a, a mechanism to work out disputes and and to avoid the kinds of shenanigans that, that undermined uh, the global economy in the past. And so that's one piece of it. But the other piece is. Is, and of course, what that allows, in a way, is that for America to export its inflation to the rest of the world, uh, because we actually did that to the Japanese to a certain degree, and and uh, as a response to uh, the 
uh, Japanese sort of mercantile economy. But uh, the other thing that's happened, though, and I don't, I'm not sure anyone really understands how, exactly how this has happened, but debt has become a weird form of currency. Uh, 50 years ago, when a bank lent money, it held the debt. It collected the debt. You know, it serviced the debt. Yeah, sure, small banks sometimes would sell off some of their mortgages or other types of loans to a larger bank, but they weren't liquid. Today, debt flies around the system at, 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 at you know computer speeds. It, it's a form of of currency, really. And there's a an, an a, almost a, an unquenchable t- uh, thirst for high grade corporate bonds, U.S. Treasuries, even municipal Treasuries. Because these things become very useful in the financial system as as stores of value you know, to trade move, and move money around, and and of course that's allowed the speed of liquidity. You know, again that that debt that was held by a bank, you know that money was tied up, wasn't going anywhere. It was it was really slow. Now that bank issues the the mortgage, and before the ink is dry, hell, before you know before you left settlement, it's already been sold three times. It's packaged up. It's in another investment. You know, it's moving all over the place. And and so debt has become like mercury in a in that it, it, the path of least resistance it instantly flows into. And so there's there's debt everywhere. I mean, you know, I I work with some larger corporations, and the idea of not being able to get access to cash. For, through debt mechanisms, I mean, no one would ever think of this. It's just, it's always there. And that really changes, I think, a lot of how how things are done in small ways. And an example I like to use, and, and if I'm talking too long, stop me, because I, I can go on too long, but an, an, uh, an example I like to use is wholesale uh, industrial supply companies. There's always used to be sort of mom and pops. When I was a teenager a million years ago, I worked construction. And, you know, you go off and, if, like, I work for steam fitters. And they'd send me off in the truck to go get pipe, uh, fittings, uh, welding supplies, you know, that kind of thing from the industrial supply place. And there were always mom and pops. There was a, you know, a, it was a family business. The, uh, the you know, the man, the man in the household, he, he ran the back and his wife ran the office, that kind of deal. And, you know, maybe they, they had a big place and they serviced a big chunk of the marketplace or maybe they were a small guy and, or maybe they had a couple small places, you know, that, depending upon the structure of the, the city they were in. And they'd have competitors and they were mostly just kind of regional operators. You know, they were, this was the guy you went to if you were on the east side and then you maybe went to his other branch if you were on the north side of the city, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, what cheap credit allowed to happen is that guys came in, it's not even cheap credit, it's a special kind of credit. These private investors who could come in and say, well, look, you run a really good business. You're the largest guy here in the area, but you could do better if you bought up all the other guys. So we're going to provide that capital for you to do that. And when you do this, you're not just going to buy them and operate them as they are. You're going to get rid of the mom and the pop. You don't need that anymore. You don't need their computer guy to run their inventory system because you have all that. All those things will be consolidated. You save all those costs. Now, all of a sudden, you've got their revenue. You don't have all their costs. You can get maybe unload some of their real estate. And you now have the, a bigger chunk of the market, maybe all of the market. And you keep doing this over and over again. And before long, one holding company has essentially bankrolled an entire region's wholesale uh, industrial supply. You know, they have different names. They operate under different names. And I know this has actually happened in some places where, you know, it's just really one company owns all of these different named places. And so the, the consequence is, is that all those small businesses have been uh, financialized. And what that what does that mean? Well, all those small business owners are no longer contributing to the community the same way that they used to. 
you know, they're not sponsoring the local little league teams. You know, they're not uh, buying a new stained glass for the church or getting a door painted or roof put on, you know, that kind of stuff. They're not doing those things. Instead, these are just managers who work there, clock in, go home. And so the social capital of all these kinds of businesses has been financialized, toted off to New York or London or who knows where into the system, you know, because the system doesn't really exist anywhere. It just kind of floats in the clouds and and it goes away. And, and in a weird way, this this new kind of credit is slowly hollowing out our, our societies. You know, it's, it's bankrupting all of us. It's homogenizing everything. And, it, it, and I don't think the people who have kind of designed this really knew what they were designing because you listen to them talk. They don't they don't seem to understand what's happening. You know, they, they don't know, for example, I know, and I can't talk too much details about this, but I know one city in America that has one company that supplies a, a particular range of food products that are very popular with people. One company. It's a big city. Everything goes through that, break, that choke point. And that, that's, and that happens in all kinds of areas in the economy. And it's, it wasn't possible in the old system. You couldn't bring that kind of credit together because the cost of credit was too high and the, the mechanism for pulling it together didn't exist. But it does now. And, and as a result, you know, we're, coming, we're becoming this, this middleman economy where the only way to get rich is to transact some, some deal. You know, you're, you're, you're in that position where money changes hands and for a second it doesn't belong to either, either party and you skim off a piece. That's, that's one way. So you make lots of transactions. Or the other way is that you have a monopoly or a bottleneck. Uh, Peter Thiel wrote a whole book about that. So that's how you get rich. You know, find, a, find something you can monopolize and, and, and uh, you become basically a tax farmer. And so we're not a, an economy anymore that builds things and makes things and invents things. We're an economy that has lots and lots of transactions that, work, that flow at higher and higher speeds because you have all these middlemen who are working off the skim in one way or another. And, and the, the energy of this is this new kind of, of currency, the credit currency. And and I, again, I don't I don't I I don't think the smartest economic brains really truly understand what in the heck has been unleashed over the last thirty years because this is something really completely different. Well, Paul Krugman admitted recently that uh, globalization took him by surprise, and that the people that he assumed who could be retrained that were displaced by outsourcing and offshoring at the factories to places like China and Mexico were not able to find employment again. Uh, and I think uh, when you look at the globalization of, of not just trade, but labor flows and capital flows, I think you see a similar destabilization effect on the little guy or the, even the middle guy, whereby you, you used to have a lot of like small regional banks. And again, with this consolidation that has been enabled by legislation uh, and the fact that the overall economic policy seems to be focused on the total sum of production, not the distribution of the production, uh, we seem to be allowing uh, the concentration of wealth to degrees that probably hasn't been seen since the Gilded Age. And I was also curious about, given the parallels there, uh, we used to have guys like J.P. Morgan bankrolling U.S. Steel, uh, creating uh, huge corporations um, with his uh, capital. Uh, he helped set up uh, General Electric, as we talked about, uh, and others. Uh, there was a, a trust-busting mentality in Washington that was Teddy Roosevelt, uh, very populist in many ways, trying to uh, address the concentrations, but that seems to have gone away. And I'm not even saying that that was necessarily the best solution, but it seemed to be part of the solution in terms of at least 
distributing some of the the capital to other hands other than just a, a couple of guys. And I'm curious why that is no longer the case anymore on either side, the Democrats or the Republicans. Well, Roosevelt was not an idealist. He was a Morgan man himself. Well, of course. But I mean, if you want to talk more broadly about the shift in antitrust uh, law and the kind of legal regime around there, I mean, people talk now, especially literally today, talking about the uh, the four large uh, technology companies uh, hauled in, uh, quote unquote, to testify before Congress today. People have this kind of straw man of antitrust as well. You, you've got a monopoly and that's not good. Uh, so you break it up into smaller companies. But that's not really the way that antitrust law has worked since the like 80s or so. Um, there's the sort of intellectual movement that translated into a, a legal policy movement that translated into government policy around that time where effectively the United States government decided that it was not interested in controlling monopolies qua monopolies, but rather in uh, controlling quote-unquote anti-competitive behavior. And what is anti-competitive behavior? Like There's a kind of a set of no-nos that you're not supposed to engage in like explicit uh, price fixing with your competitors. But mostly it's this idea of, well, we don't want any uh, business arrangements to arise that are going to decrease this consumer surplus uh, that we all, of course, uh, you know, somewhat ironically or maybe not ironically, depending on how you uh, look at our current set of economic arrangements, uh, enjoy. And I mean, in Teddy Roosevelt's day, the it was much more of a explicit uh, kind of recognition that if you have this vast concentration of wealth and capital, you also have a collection of political power that is able to oppose the policy aims of the government, which, you know, in an ideal world kind of reflect some sort of abstracted, uh, will of the people. And uh, the transition that happened in the uh, mid-80s was uh, to conceive of it not as uh, trying to enforce a set of political arrangements and to try to limit the ability of people like Zuckerberg or Bezos uh, to control public discourse, to dictate government policy, but to ensure that there's enough uh, goods and services flowing through the economy uh, at a you know, quote-unquote reasonable price uh, to ensure that everybody has enough gibs to keep them uh, satiated. I and think it's also, well, I was going to say, I think it's also worth noting that uh, you know Roosevelt was really responding, the Republicans were responding to political pressure at the time from a man named William Jennings Bryan, who uh, who along with um, Thorstein Verblin and and uh, all all these all these characters um, uh, were sort of leading the antitrust, anti-monopoly, anti-Morgan agenda um, from uh, the Democratic Party, and were much more popular in the Midwest and the South. And there was a, a real political battle brewing between regions of the United States where. 
Roosevelt sort of representing the old New England and, uh, you know, sort of north of Virginia region of the country and its interests saw that um, two other major regions of the country felt as though they were not reaping the benefits of the new industrial policy. And right, I mean, that was that was the problem that the it wasn't that the trusts were sort of exploiting the country in general. It was that they were having specific and concentrated negative economic effects on the political constituency that people like William Jennings Bryant uh, represented. Right. Like it was the the exact same uh, conflict that arose in monetary policy. Like literally, the coalitions are identical where you had uh, the Midwestern uh, heavily indebted farmers who wanted loose money, they wanted inflation, and they wanted low rates to provide a good market uh, for their uh, their agricultural products. And you had uh, in opposition to that <clears throat> a set of industrial concerns that were trying to dominate the uh, the sort of intermediary purchasing market for those agricultural commodities like you know the sugar trust or if you're hauling grain from uh, one part of the country to another like the idea of a monopoly over rail transport or the uh, the fuel inputs to those rail lines like the the reason why antitrust became a thing was because it was uh a you know, sort of <clears throat> insufficiently powerful monopoly that had not quite yet subsumed all of its suppliers into its own political umbrella. In the current situation, you have uh, kind of a, a really topologically different set of arrangements where instead of screwing over some concentrated constituency like Midwestern farmers in a still heavily agricultural economy, uh, instead, they focus on st stealing, I'll just say it outright, uh, dimes at a time uh, from the population at large. Like if you look at how things like retirement savings are arranged in the United States, where everything is focused on these public capital markets and the people managing that money collect year after year, you know, 0.1%. It doesn't sound like a lot until you realize that that's 0.1% of the entire <laughs> retirement savings that constitutes essentially the entire uh, income for the latter 20 years of your life. Like that's a that's a huge pool of money. And not only that, but collecting the bid ask spread when every month or every two weeks or however often you contribute to your 401k uh, collecting the bid ask spread on that pile of money so it's this this wildly inventive business model where they're scooping up very small amounts of money over very very large numbers of people but still huge piles of wealth that they're snorfling the uh you know the the frosting off the cake of uh, american wealth well, you know, I tell you, this this brings up an interesting point uh, because I had it in my notes here, and uh, so it's a good segue. And that is, there's a book by a guy named Yuri Sleskind, I think his name is, and it's it's titled The Jewish Century. 
And what he argues is that the 20th century, America transformed and adopted what he calls Jewish economics. He's Jewish himself. And he doesn't get it. It's kind of long-winded. And it's a good book to read because it's an interesting sort of insights into the 20th century from a different perspective than any of us probably have. But it's a his argument is, is that, first of all, there was a separation of economics and politics. You know, prior to the 20th century, politics and economics were combined together, political economy. Uh, you know, as you're talking about, say, antitrust, they're not looking at, hey, is this the most efficient way or will these changes in the law benefit my constituency who are working to skim? You know, they looked and said, this is not really good for the country, and so we need to make these changes. And you know, it's funny, when you look back at those uh, trust busting, is that the, the trust being busted up really didn't put that big a fight up. You know, they, they weren't the, the, you know, going to war like we're seeing, say, Google and Microsoft doing. You know, they had that big uh, hearing today. And everyone is, uh, every one of the congressmen who are involved in it, they're all on the pad. They're all being paid by Google. <laughs> you know, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're spreading money around Washington right now, you know, dropping it from helicopters. They're not going to give it up. And Rockefeller you know, made the majority of his uh, paper wealth, at least uh, after being broken up. It really seems to have uh, unleashed those animal instincts of the free market to make him uh, from incredibly wealthy to world historically wealthy. Well, and these guys, they built museum systems, they built school systems, library systems. You know, there was a connection. There was a cultural connection to the people. Politics, economics and and culture were all tied together. And what changed in the 20th century is that these things all got disaggregated. You know, politics was about, you know, you think about, you know, say in the 19th century, a man got successful in his community. Maybe he was a lawyer. He got wealthy in business, whatever. And then he went off to Congress. You know, you got a political life came after you demonstrated success. Now you start out penniless. You go into a Congress and you become a millionaire. <laughs> I mean, these guys are rich. I mean, two, three years, they go from having almost no net wealth, some of them, to being millionaires. Well, there, there's and, a difference between, like, rich and rich. I mean, the congressmen and senators are sort of highly compensated, I guess, but they don't tend to accrue enough money to actually become politically significant in their own rights. They make, like, you know, what you might expect a, uh, like, a, a mid-level executive at some somewhere like GE or Google. Uh, oh, over well, the they do better than that. They do much better than that. You know, if, I mean, the great example was always uh, John Kerry. John Kerry was actually penniless when he got into politics. He, his money, he had a family name. He had no money. And he left the Senate with $110 million. Wow. And, and that it helps hurt. when you marry, marry the ketchup heiress. Well, he actually married two of them. He married a beer baroness uh, before her. They got divorced. And then uh, then he married her. But that there's a really And when you a lot kill of her parents. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, how these guys wind up getting it is through basically insider access. The guy who was um, Kucinich, not Kucinich, the, the, uh, the governor of uh, Ohio who ran for president in 2016, I forget his name. Kasich. Yeah, the son of a milkman. Uh, he left politics uh, with uh, $20 million in, in, the, in the bank. And if you look, he had a two-year stint in the private sector. And so how did he get the $20 million? Well, you know, <laughs> the old-fashioned way. And... But I mean, these guys, in other words, th these are, and look, these people are not particularly uh, gifted. They, they wouldn't last in the private sector. I mean, you, you know, so for these guys to walk away with 20, 30, 40 million dollars is the ratios there compared, you know, talent to actual uh, money is astronomical. But, you know, what happens though is that, you know, these, this disaggregation though has, you know, the, the people who are, say, in the finance side, they're not pushing policies, they say, hey, these are, are good for us and they're good for the country. They don't think about that. They think, hey, this is good for the skim. 
and I'll make it worth the while the politicians to sign off on this stuff because they'll get their beak wet. And and basically, our economy in the 20th century became just a bust out. Everybody's looking to get cash in on the fire sale. We're like a Walmart and a ghetto riot. All these guys are rushing in and carrying out sneakers and televisions and all the other stuff. It's, it's That's exactly how the economy works. And that's what the interesting about the Schleskine guy is that what he actually describes is that what he calls the, the, the new capitalism is is essentially all these cultures are in inward looking culturally, outward looking as where they do their economics. So you go out into the marketplace, you get what you can get, and you don't care what much damage it does. But maybe in within your community, you are supposed to be generous and take care of your own. But unfortunately, yeah, some some uh, some of our elements are. Um, paternalistic like that towards themselves or their people, but most are not. That's not the American way. And so what we've, what the result has been is a sort of fragmentation of the American economy and American culture and, and a hollowing out of our small towns, our small communities and all the other things, because, you know, this economic model isn't closely linked to a cultural model. You know, those politicians who are sitting in that, um, and that antitrust thing, they're not, they're not thinking of what's bad for the country. They're thinking, how can I leverage this into more campaign donations? How, how can I use this to maybe get my, my Congress, uh, my uh, district, uh, changed so that I don't have to worry about a challenger, you know, I'm locked in, you know, it, it's, it's a, everybody's in it for themselves. It, it really is. It's, you know, it's, it's like a, uh, again, it's like, it's like a, like a ghetto riot. I mean, I live in, in Baltimore, so ghetto riots are a thing I'm familiar with, but you know, this is this is how everybody looks. I want to get what I can get and screw everybody else. And and I don't think that was the case a hundred years ago. I don't think the people who were trust busting or the people whose trust were being busted had that sense that hey, screw everybody. I'm I'm in it for myself. I I think there's a big cultural difference. Well, there's a difference in being uh, a a representative in the context of a large and declining power versus a uh, you know, medium-sized and a very much growing power. Like when you're in a growth, uh, growth business or a growth-oriented country, you can make a lot of hay by uh, actually, you know, showing that you can uh, make that uh, trickle down to some sort of defined constituency, or even by increasing the aggregate, um, you know, the slice, the, uh, the size of the pie, as opposed to the, uh, the portions for your guys. And I think sometime, uh, in the, uh, mid 1990s, that was no longer really the case. Uh, when we decided that we were going to deindustrialize and make, uh, the, the concept or the, the source of wealth and the economy more or less completely fictitious, like, I mean, people say that America doesn't really build anything anymore. That's not really the case. Uh, there's still a huge amount of industrial economy in the United States, but that's not sort of where the uh, where the graft is. That's not where um, your opportunity is to actually make your fortune. I think Elon Musk is probably the only kind of newly minted uh, industrial magnate quote unquote that we've produced over the course of the last what like 40 years or so uh all of the returns now are in can you structure things correctly to actually make some of that wealth that was previously locked up uh in things like physical plant like real estate can you make that legible in a way that actually accrues to a specific dollar sign in your uh, personal bank account. Well, Elon is a, 
I'm sorry, growing an actual capital stock. Elon is a very interesting example. Um, we tried to get John McAfee to sort of give us the behind the scenes explanation on, on that guy. Uh, but if you look at the valuation of Tesla, where the majority of Musk's wealth comes from, he also runs, quote unquote, SpaceX and a few other lesser important companies. Uh, but they're all, they're all like industrial technology companies. They're sort of both. But what's interesting about it, if you look at the valuation of Tesla, the company is valued like a growth tech, tech stock, but it's it's really, in the words of famous short seller Jim Chanos, it's a car company. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem with the valuation is that as opposed to software, which has very low variable costs and all of the costs are associated with developing the front end uh, software platform these days. It used to be just the disc that would be written uh, into master and then you just pump these out for you know 30 cents a copy uh, and then the economies of scale were enormous. But the contrast this software business, which is basically what people mean when they say tech, to a capital intensive factory oriented, machinery oriented, you need land, you need labor, you need equipment. The the scale is is just not there to the returns. And that's what typically what Silicon Valley uh, and the venture capitalists that back them has focused on is these like highly scalable businesses like Google or Facebook, where you basically just write software and then you get seven 700 million users and then suddenly you're a billionaire because it's just those massive economies of scale. It doesn't exist in the industrial economy. And uh, it used to be the source of the wealth in America because there was uh, just a lot of cheap immigrant labor that was coming in and lots of natural resources that enabled that industrial growth. But the people who make these big financial decisions, they've seen cheaper places to produce this stuff uh, as the shipping container has become such a reality today for logistics that you can literally make something. I saw a very funny chart on Twitter. Uh, somebody was holding up a cup of... Uh, I chopped up a fruit, one of those fruit cups, and it said, um, product of Argentina canned in Thailand, and they're sitting in New York. All right, so they literally grew the stuff on in South America. They shipped it across the largest expanse of ocean on the planet to uh, Asia, and then they moved it yet again over to North America, and then across the, the continent or either through the Panama Canal. So it's globalization has been enabled not only by information technology, but logistics technology. Uh, and this just wasn't the case before. And so America really focused on this like capital intensive stuff that employed a lot of people and it created really the middle class. But now that globalization has enabled moving things overseas, the really the wealth creation has been in the tech sector. Uh, six out of seven of the top uh, wealthiest people I think in America are in tech. Uh, and that includes, uh, I think, Musk now, uh, who's past Warren Buffett. But it's a really strange company because it just doesn't make that much money. Uh, Everybody is just kind of hype, hyping about it. It's also very heavily dependent on government policy. Like Tesla, we've, we've talked about this before. Tesla makes a large amount of its uh, revenue to the extent that they would not be profitable if it was not for other car companies buying their cafe credits. SpaceX is a large government contractor. Neither of those businesses would exist if it were not for 
uh, either regulatory, uh, not necessarily preferences, but exploiting regulatory regimes that are set up by the government, which is fine. I mean, that's a time-honored tradition. Like DuPont, you want to talk about a uh, American industrial powerhouse? I mean, DuPont made their uh, mark uh, selling gunpowder um, to the United States federal government as war material. There's a huge number of fortunes that are attributable to uh, the uh, the United States Civil War. Um, there's a huge amounts of fortunes that are attributable to the railroad boom when the right of way was basically given away uh, for free. So, I mean, there's never been a a great fortune that doesn't exist at least at the sufferance of the uh, the governing power structure but i think that it's uh at least that resulted in physical plant like it, it, it there might have been kind of a subsidy in that the initial um capital was sort of allowed to accrete into these industries but it's like at the end of the day you're making gunpowder you're like laying railroads you're doing something, and when you go bankrupt, as a lot of these companies did, that physical plant still exists. When Bear Stearns goes bankrupt, it's like, <laughs> okay, uh, well, I guess, you know, that vast amount of capital and physical plant will be liberated and available for more efficient use. No, not so much. Like, people Suddenly are basically just screwed in their counterparties. Yeah, suddenly the commercial paper market completely freezes up. And, you know, instead of just losing <laughs> factory production, you lose, you know, the working capital of every major company in America. Um, you know, something that uh, I think uh, Hank and Z-Man have brought up um, that I wanted to touch on and really, I think, get to the core of what even is uh, financialization. You ask, uh, you know, if you do any research on this and if you watch any, uh, there's a lot of great videos on YouTube, um, you know, academics and financial writers talking about this process. Um, what you find, first of all, is they all have different answers for what it is, or they all focus on specific microcosms of the, of the trend. But I think, um, there's a great article, uh, I believe it came out, uh, early, uh, or late last year, uh, in American Affairs Journal. We've recommended them before. Great publication. Do they do a lot of great work? Uh, highly recommend you guys check them out. And they wrote uh, an article: Ruslan Kormalov and Heiner Flasbeck uh, wrote this article called "Commodity Financialization and Why It Matters." Um, and here's a, a quote from the article, and I think this really encapsulates uh, the late '90s explosion in the, the financialization trend. Um, take crude oil as an example. In 1995, an oilman pumped 22.8 billion barrels globally, trading in uh, NYMEX, WTI, and ICE Brent Futures. The world's two most popular crude derivatives accounted for 33.5 billion barrels. Last year, production increased to 30.2 billion barrels. But these futures markets alone swelled to 541.6 billion barrels, becoming 18 times bigger than the global physical output. This is without taking into consideration all other derivatives, other categories, option swaps, other oil grades, medium sour, urals, derivatives for products of oil refining, gas, fuel, oil, heating oil, other exchanges, MCX, TOCOM, and cross-trading, the same derivative may be traded on several exchanges. 
including ISWTI and bilaterally over the counter. On the whole, the derivative market has grown far beyond its physical cousin. Nobody really knows its size and, and fully understands the interplay between the two. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, as you know, saying, no, even the brightest financial minds no longer seem uh, to to have a grasp of, uh, of what's of what's going on. And there's a, there's another quote here. Um, for example, two of the forebears of the CME group, Chicago Board of Trade and Chicago, Chicago Butter and Egg Board, were founded in 1848 and 1998 as voluntary associations of prominent merchants. This setup didn't guarantee orderly trading, though, as various instances of market manipulation, such as the Feruzzi uh, soybean scandal of 89, indicate in the 2000s, both exchanges demutualized, turned into for-profit stock corporations and merged. Today, most prominent commodity exchanges are for-profit companies. According to CNN, last year, institutional investors owned 87% of CME Group and 92% of International Continental Exchange the two major bursts in the Western commodity markets. Um, so I think that uh, maybe part of financialization is the, uh, the growth and the power of financial markets in of themselves. Um, there was this traditional relationship, and this I think goes to what Zeman was talking about with your, your like local uh, industrial wholesale supplier, where your local businesses, even your local uh, Sort of mid mid size mid cap companies, maybe for the scale of the locality, um, were reliant on community or state banks. They were reliant on a banking network that was very diversified, uh, had specific banks for specific purposes, had more generalized savings and loan banks, had um, a variety of different financial services that were offered by professionals who were not part of larger organizations. Uh, now. As the economy began to deindustrialize, and as the need for those banks uh, declined, and of course we talked about the savings and loan scandal, um, many of these banks collapsed. The diversity in financial services offered at a local and state level, uh, in rural and urban areas alike, uh, suddenly uh, shrunk. You know, suddenly we're not able to offer the same kind of services. In some areas, there is no service at all. Uh, and you become more reliant on larger and larger financial institutions, not local bank, but institutions to manage your investments and to actually provide you with working capital. Uh, but there's been a huge divorce, it seems like, from banking as the primary source of American corporate capital. And it's moved towards illiquid and liquid uh, you know, supply within the financial market. And increasingly, these markets themselves have become commoditized and themselves have become uh, profit-generating operations. And uh, now there's, there's a huge demand, I think, um, for financial products that generate large amounts of immediate returns for institutional investors, money market funds, your 401k plan. You Not know, even return, fund. but uh, yeah. like there, there, there's an entire market for the creation of synthetic financial products that uh, essentially are just raw variants. Right. There's uh, there's some really interesting. I highly recommend um, anyone who listens to this uh, this podcast, and really anyone who doesn't, uh, should routinely read the uh, the Bloomberg uh, columns of uh, Mark Levine or Levin, whatever money stuff is the uh, the column name 
because he has a uh, very interesting description of the sort of week by week um, happenings in the financial sector. Lots of stuff involving, um, you know, not just like, oh, the market is up, market is down, but what certain actors seem to be trying to do, what the business models of some of these players are, why things like, you know, boogeymen like paying for order flow why that actually makes sense in some circumstances interesting frauds it's it's extremely well written uh, journalism but you can you can profitably offer financial products that have negative expected value if they have certain variance characteristics uh, that actually make it worthwhile for people to integrate them into their portfolio like there's uh, a level of abstraction here that, you know, I, I get into fights with people uh, on Twitter every so often when they sort of uh, badmouth the financial sector for operating at too high of a level of abstraction. It's like, you know, at a certain level, you're talking about players that are extremely sophisticated and know precisely what they're doing. And it does make sense to have for instance, like one of the one of the kind of you know, the oil of the economy, the lubrication of the economy is uh, supplier financing. Like at the point at which you're placing really large orders for industrial supplies or for inventory as a retailer, you're not just like writing them a check and they cash the check. They wait to see if the check clears and they send you your stuff. That's what happens when you enter bankruptcy and is usually what leads to the death spiral. What usually happens is they know that they're that you're basically good for it. They send you the stuff and it's net 30, net 60, etc., where you're supposed to pay them within like however many days after receiving the product and after hopefully selling it so that you have the actual cash flow to provide it to them. Now, if you're like some steel mill and you're providing billet steel to some manufacturer that's going to turn that into car panels, that's going to sell that to a car manufacturer, it's not at all clear that you really metaphysically should be in the business of having a lot of spare capital that you just kind of have on hand that you're floating essentially a loan, a short-term loan to these these customers of yours. So you might very well decide, I want to be in the producing steel market. I don't want to be in the loan business. So instead, you contract with some bank, they front the capital, you don't need to have as much cash on hand, you can invest that cash in expanding your operations. And instead, the bank fronts the actual loan through whatever uh, you know structure you want, maybe your customer pays a fee, meaning that's rolled into the purchase price. It doesn't really matter. But the point is, you don't actually need to be in that business anymore. You can be in the steel business. And the more you look at uh, kind of normal commercial arrangements, the more you see these areas where uh, you have companies that are basically engaged in financial transactions that they could, if they wanted to, outsource to the financial sector. And that's kind of the the rosy-eyed view of what the financial sector and financialization could be about. Uh, finding circumstances where it makes sense to split off the financial components of the thing 
so that you actually don't have to deal with it. Uh, you wash your hands of it, and uh, you know, Goldman Sachs uh, worries about how exactly to come up with the cash flow uh, in order to front uh, people's products for them. Of course, that's not exactly the way that it works in practice, but I don't think that it's always a bad thing uh, to split off uh, these businesses um, or these components of these businesses into um, specialty companies. In, in general, well, I'd, I'd agree with you, um, Hank, just because all of us are in the business of not investing our savings account. That's what we grant the bank uh, to do on our behalf, assuming that they have access to better opportunities on a day-to-day basis. Um, I guess the question is, where do you draw the line between the disintermediation of who who has a claim to the capital and who is managing it? Uh, I think the mortgage crisis is the sort of canonical disaster example where people were originating loans to people that they had really no incentive uh, or frankly that good of an understanding of how risky they were. And then they were bundling them up, selling them off to uh, some some bank on Wall Street who would then bundle that up into an even bigger collateralized debt obligation CDO uh, and sell it to some pension fund in Germany uh, that uh, ended up getting hit after the mortgage meltdown. Uh, That was a very famous example. Uh, And so a lot of people point to the fact that the originator doesn't have the incentive to do risk management. Uh, And then the information loss is somewhat substantial when you have these international networks of capital flow away from the local local loan. So I'm not saying it's all bad or in theory it's all bad because clearly some of it works in practice, but it's tough to generally say where to draw the line Uh, And risk is a very difficult thing to model in finance because you're dealing with very complex systems that are generally not that repeatable. It's not like physics where you can use statistical process control and try to get the the reaction to work within a couple of standard deviations uh, fairly consistently, uh, like in chemistry or something. But in economics and finance and business, things are just super chaotic. And so I think, Oh, it, and it's not t- only chaotic. I mean, it, it like, this is kind of the toy model for why supplier financing exists because they know their customers and they can say this guy, there is no possible way he is manufacturing that amount of steel into anything. This is some dude who is trying to run some kind of a grift. He's, I don't know, selling it on the back end and he's going to stiff us on the bill. Goldman Sachs doesn't necessarily know that because they're not in the steel business. So there's this kind of synergy between like, yeah, the the kind of raw allocation of capital relies on this informational element. And I think when the United States was a more coherent company, you were able to make better evaluations and ironically kind of commoditize the notion of this is Joe Blow. He's an upstanding local small businessman. Of course, I confront him the, uh, you know, 400 pounds of beef jerky for his gas stations or whatever, as opposed to this is Abdullah. He's got a foreign passport. He might not be there tomorrow. He might not actually be there today. As far as I know, uh, there's no way to figure out exactly which Abdullah Muhammad I'm actually dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So it's uh, it's something where, you know, 
it's a reciprocal uh, addition of complexity where the financial arrangements uh, enable the the creation of these incredibly complex structures. They allow somebody to literally walk off the boat and open up a gas station, but then actually to skip on their uh, their obligations to their suppliers. And you have these incredibly complex grifts that are all um, uh, very uh, subross and hardly ever talked about because they're not particularly creative or inventive. It's literally just somebody cheating on their supplies, their suppliers, or cheating on their taxes or whatever. Uh, I frankly don't think that there's like a good principled solution to this. It also ultimately breaks down to a political problem of how much uh, how much concentration of risk and political power you're going to allow all of these actors. And even measuring it is so complicated that, uh, you know, you can just kind of try as you may, but then you're relying on a competent government, uh, which we probably don't have anymore. Well, I think if I'm going to jump in here and I'm going to kind of walk you back a little bit back to your Tesla model and Tesla confuses people when, because according to the, uh, the the structure of classical economics really shouldn't exist. I mean, there's no great demand for electric cars, the huge subsidies that go to them and all that, you know, you can, when you start accounting for these things, what's, what's the point here? What's the purpose of this company? Well, the purpose is this. Tesla is a va- highly valued company because they create transactions and more important, they create opportunities to create transactions. The transaction is what drives the modern economy. In the old days, a car maker, well, what he wanted to do was build up his actual capital. That's a capitalist. He wanted the facilities to make the cars. And he didn't just want to assemble the cars. He wanted to stamp the, the body components. He wanted to make the frames, build the engines. He wanted to do everything. He wanted all in-house. He didn't want to go outside because the more he did, the more power he had in his marketplace. And, and of course, the, the, the richer he was. You know, he had more stuff. He owned more stuff. In the modern economy today, you don't you don't want to own anything. It, uh, this is something I actually did for a living is to make that whole thing go away. You know, to clean the balance sheet of all those assets, and and this really started in the '90s, and, and that's when I used to do this kind of stuff. And what you wanted instead, and so I, you know, without I haven't really dug into the Tesla's actual financial structure, but I've got a pretty good guess. I know what's going on there. But let's let's say a hypothetical company that used to make cars. Well, somebody like me would come in and say, well, having all this stuff on your balance sheet is terrible. You don't want this. What you want instead is we're going to outsource as much as we can. And we're not going to outsource it to just some other vendor. No, we're going to get this off of your balance sheet. So all this machinery, we're going to put this on a lease. And there's tax opportunities there that you can take advantage of. So now instead of having to sit on your balance sheet, it's now an expense in your income statement. Oh, we're going to do the same thing for various other parts, say you know, delivery mechanisms, trucks and trailers and rail cars and all these things. We'll, if we have to set up separate companies and, and, and lease them back to you, we'll do that. But we're going to get all, all this stuff off your balance sheet. You don't want all this stuff there. Maybe you keep your main headquarters or something like that. But hell, you can even do that and rent it back to you. And, and why is this? Well, because now you're not only flexible, you have you can change vendors, you can move around, you can do all this stuff. But you're creating lots and lots of transactions. There's lots and lots of people who can do business with you in all kinds of ways, whether it's through finance, finance coming in, refinancing your, your you know, re, re, uh, uh, re, refinancing your lease agreements, or your, your labor agreements. 
you, you know, for example, in that that company uh, that's building cars would have warehouses. So a company like GE would come in and say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to buy that warehouse from you. We're going to be GE Logistics. We'll come in and buy that warehouse and we'll hire the people. And now you'll have a single entry of a lease payment now in your income statement. And all those assets are now gone. And we'll, you know, and the lease agreement will be structured so that, you know, we'll renew the equipment, we'll maintain certain things, how many people, you know, all that kind of operating stuff was there. And there was a guarantee that every year, every quarter, there'll be a reassessment of costs and that kind of stuff. And and so that asset sitting on the on the books now just became 12 transactions. And it is it's kind of a funny way to think of it, but we're an economy based on activity. We, our, that's the whole point of our economy. And that's why our credit and our, our, our currency is so liquid because it needs to be able to move so quickly from one transaction to the next. Because in every transaction, there's somebody there making a little bit of money. And you look at, I mean, let's face it, you don't get rich in America anymore making something. You get rich in America by making a tech company. And you look at the structure of a new tech company, something like TikTok or what's the one um, – that sold uh, to Facebook for like $5 billion. It, Instagram, uh, Instagram or, or WhatsApp. That's a good one. Okay. Would you look at what these companies are? They're not even have their own technology. What they do is they get a licensing agreement from this guy who has this push notification system. Oh, we get a licensing agreement from this guy that handles, uh, renders images. Oh, and this guy has a, a technology to render video and blah, 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 you know, on and on it goes. The company doesn't really exist other than as a collection of licensing agreements. Somebody bundled all this stuff together, gets a whole bunch of users in it, pounding away, making transactions every month, and then they turn around and sell this this transaction machine to, to Facebook for billions of dollars. There's a company that's in Washington. Uh, it's really interesting. It's called Uspace, um, I think it's called, or something, Uscreen. That's what it is. A lot of these guys who got thrown off of YouTube started putting up their ones like Gavin McGinnis and Milo and uh, Vox Day and uh, some others. You know, they start their own video service, right? Well, it's not really their own video service. They go to this company and it's like three guys, basically, but it looks like a real company. But they have an agreement with Vimeo. So they'll private label Vimeo's video service to you for a fee. They private label the front end, you know, where the site is. They private label the uh, uh, credit card transactions, probably Stripe. In other words, all these companies, all they're doing is bringing these guys together in a one-stop shopping environment. So you come in, you you give them a fee, and then they turn around and give all these other guys fees. That's the economy today. That's how you that's how you get rich. It's how you make money. Is it's all through these transactions, and it kind of goes back to that middleman economy. You know, you, you always want to be that middleman. You want to be between two transactions all the time because you get a piece over and over and over again. And that's not classical economics. That's not build something, build wealth, sink roots, you know, build a strong community. It's, it's, it's much more the kind of economy that is run by men who sit at card tables and have a suitcase packed in the car running in the parking lot. Because, man, if things go wrong, boom, they're out the door. Or if they get rich, they fill their suitcase with cash and hop in a car and go to the next town. You know, and I, that's why I call um, Elon Musk the, the monorail salesman. I mean, that's really what he is. I mean, this is a guy who goes around and he just creates deals that people can come in and make money on. And, of course, they're all happy to do it because a lot of the money comes from government. Um, he's, you know, shaking down, I think, California to drill a big, a big tunnel under Los Angeles or something. You know, that's a perfect example. He probably doesn't own the drilling equipment. He probably doesn't, you know, he has a piece of the company. You know, he's just getting a piece of the transaction by making it possible. And and that's that's really what our economy is. It's just lots and lots of activity. And somewhere in there, there's guys who get a little, they get their beak wet in each transaction. And and that, that's, what it, that's what it's based on. It's a middleman economy. So if we generally 
agree and we, we can go into even more detail as to maybe why this is not preferable to the uh, prior system. How do we change, not we on the show, but just as a society, what, what possibility is there to change any of this if the people that are running the system are making money with this system? They don't have an incentive to change it. So, and we saw with Trump, I mean, he had sort of like this kind of faux populism that really didn't amount to anything. If he can't do it, who can? And if uh, if we can't, then what hope do we have if not becoming really, really rich ourselves? I mean, that's sort of where I unfortunately see the uh, only choice at this point. But I'd love to hear ideas as to how to reform this if we desire it. Well, I, I think... You know that you can build something that's too complicated that you can't understand anymore. You know, I, 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 I've used, you know, John Derbyshire had a great way of describing something. He reviewed Kevin McDonald's book 30 years ago, whenever it came out. And he said, you know, certain people have a penchant for pseudosciences, you know, elaborate, plausible and intellectually very challenging systems that don't have any truth value. You know, they're just these really complicated uh, you know, uh, whirly gigs, you know, these, uh, what do they call those Rube Goldberg machines? You know, like the, the, the guy pops out of a, uh, a, uh, or the, the uh, thing pops out of a cuckoo clock, pushes a little guy, he falls down, a bowling ball rolls down a track, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, that's our economy. And it's gotten so complicated and so complex. No one really knows exactly how this thing is working. So most likely the end result is collapse. It's just it, it, we're, we're in a system that's spinning faster and faster and faster because it's built to do it's all the incentives are there. And I think collapse is probably the most likely outcome. I think 2008 was a, was a big warning. Right. No one knew no, to this day. No one really knows what the hell happened there, how that happened. I mean, they, they have some ideas, but they, they don't why systemically it evolved that way. You know, they, they, they can't look at that. All they did is patch it and say, I hope it doesn't happen again. I've made similar assertions as you have. Um, one thing I have come to, agree with though recently is that if you take a look at a similar superpower that collapsed not that long ago, obviously uh, the USSR, um, when the pieces were all on the floor, the people that picked them up were sharks, the oligarchs. And I don't anticipate anything being any different in this country. We already have oligarchs. And I think they're in a very good position to pick up the pieces, even if it does collapse. So Again, how do you really reform the system? Because I, I do see this fundamental financial incentive still existing. Um, you know, Rome made the same mistakes as Greece, but was there any other choice? Because it's just human nature we're dealing with. Incentives are there, and the system is going to be exploited because unfortunately, people just don't have any restraints anymore. Like the morality has kind of gone away. And unless we all go to church or something, I, which I don't anticipate, I don't, I don't know what's really going to change fundamentally. Like what happened in Russia was they ha they went through a really dark time. And then a guy who knew how to basically run the security services and keep checks and all these oligarchs took over. That is not Trump. And I don't see anybody in the United States uh, comparing to Putin. So <clears throat> I'm just looking for, you know, grasping at straws here. I'm not I'm not trying to uh, disagree with where you're coming from, but it's it's just a it's a conundrum. I, I I don't really see any easy answers. Yeah, you know when I say collapse, I mean I think you know we have this kind of image of sort of the Argentine financial crisis where all of a sudden nothing works, and um, you know I, I I kind of have in mind more sort of late Roman Empire, 
early medieval Spain, where, you know, you have all these disaggregated power centers. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a book, it's called, uh, it's a really cool book to read. It's because <laughs> it's, it's one of those books where you read it and the, the uh, intent of it uh, is one thing, but you wound up picking up all this other stuff. And it's called uh, Medieval Jewish Policy. Uh, early medieval Jewish policy, that's what it is. And what he does is a scholar in uh, Minnesota, he examined uh, the rules that these various groups, the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, the Carolingians, you know, all these different groups imposed on on Jews and how they actually implemented them. And what he found is that most of it was just ceremonial. It didn't really happen. And, you know, because they, they didn't have the power because everything was so splintered and central authority was so weak, it, everything became this, a sort of combination of negotiation and necessity. And so, um, you know, a town might be like, for instance, there were, there were Catholic bishops that had to be approved by the local rabbi because basically the local rabbi ran the city, <laughs> he ran the town and which sounds insane, but that's just the way it happened to be. And, you know, that's the kind of, you know, this sort of interlocking relationships eventually led to feudalism, what we think of feudalism. And I, I think that's kind of where we're starting to head. I mean, who has more power right now, Google or the IRS? I don't know. I'm not sure if that's a, I don't, I'm not sure the answer is obvious. You know, has, who has more power, Apple or, uh, or Congress? I mean, Apple has what, a trillion dollars uh, hedge fund they operate? Yeah. And I, where are they located? I mean, so I had one in my notes this concept of a reverse merger where a lot of the American corporations or quote unquote American corporations have uh, been quote unquote bought by tiny little offices in Ireland in order to locate the basis of their income stream in a low tax country, basically in order to avoid paying U.S. taxes. And that may have changed with uh, Trump's tax, corporate tax cut. Uh, but it's like these companies are not really national anymore. They're transnational. Uh, this is sort of the basis of globalism. And you can kind of uh, shop around to whatever venue is most accommodating to you. And I, I really do think governments have become less and less relevant in the 21st century uh, as the barriers have been stripped away at essentially the, the lobbying efforts of these large corporations. Mm -hmm. Um, so how do you undo that or should you undo that? Uh, the, the argument again that I've, uh, or also that I've heard uh, a lot lately and thought about is that, okay, let's say you, maybe not North Korea, but some like East Asian country that has a lot of uh, mercantile policy or in, at least industrial policy to try to protect a lot of its native industry, uh, inculcate a skilled labor force that has the ability to produce actually functional, tangible goods, mm -hmm. as opposed to a bunch of, uh, you know, vaporware that is traded on a stock market that blows up, you know, in 10 years down the road. Um, so they try to do that, but in Asia, but one of the concerns about that approach is you kind of isolate yourself from global talent flows and opportunities, uh, and also somewhat competitive pressures. Uh, and I don't know in America how we sort of compete on a global basis when we have a, a labor force that's frankly just not that great. Uh, in some sectors, and unfortunately, like a lot of the smart people end up in places like finance, which frankly, I think is not that great of a contribution back to the society as a whole. But if you could take those minds, and this is an old saying, it's like if you could take the, the geniuses on people who created the, the, the CDOs and the uh, collateralized nonsense that 
took essentially PhDs in finance. If you could take those brains and put it into physics or something like that, uh, America might have a more sound economy. Uh, but it just doesn't seem to, to be happening. And then you have this other labor force that had this massive uh, just reputation in the 70s. And American uh, industrial employment it peaked in 1979. That was the top of the real um, middle class kind of worker industrial employment era. And then since then, it's been Reaganomics, basically. Um, and but before that, the, the unions were like notorious for like putting beer cans and bumpers and just not bolting things down in the auto assembly plants and just having this very antagonistic relationship with management who also was not very nice to them. Uh, they, and they immediately moved into the offshoring business when they were allowed to, uh, by technology and by legislation and things like NAFTA. So if you go back to like this old workers paradise of the fifties, is that even like possible given how screwed up the rest of the world was from the war? Um, I, I wonder about these things. Like, what could you do? Could you have protectionism? Could you have trade barriers? That's what Trump ran on. And he got stopped pretty much dead in his tracks on most of that. I think Wilbur Ross got a little bit in. But um, I do wonder if you cut yourself off sort of like a little bit of what the Asians do. Could America, given its labor pool, compete, even though it would distribute some of the wealth better? Uh, it's just another sort of thought I've had about industrial policy if, if we're to reform this. Well, you know, one of the things that's always fun to point out to people is that a you know, hundred years ago, the, all the, the, you know, the, uh, the world's elites were all hooked on globalism. There was a book, I always forget the damn name of it. It came out like six months before the great war broke out that said, you know, global economics made war an unthinkable possibility. There'll never be another war. And, <laughs> but you know, uh, open borders, immigration, wholesale immigration to the country. Uh, you know, the, of course, uh, the uh, early signs of, of a runaway capitalism, you know, that the stock markets were, were, were going crazy. And you know, we, we seem tend to think that the stock market started in the 1930s or 1920s. That's not really true. You know, uh, there's a book I always recommend. It's called uh, The Money Game by a guy named Adam Smith. It's, it's a fake name. It was written in the 60s. And there's two things about the book that are great. I, I've read one that, of his books. It's uh, another one's called Super Money. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the one that the uh, uh, one he wrote that I think is like 1963 or something. First of all, he he foresaw the whole what was going to happen with uh, information technology and uh, funny and the stock business. I mean, it, it's, it's creepy how how good he, he he was at predicting what would happen. But the other thing is he tells a lot of stories about 50, 60 years prior about the shenanigans that went on in financial markets. And it's, it's a funny thing. He was telling stories 50 years ago saying, Hey, you know, uh, you know, nothing's really changed. So you, you stretch the timeline out. I meant that stuff that went on a hundred years ago is the same kind of shenanigans we're seeing today. In other words, there's a certain repetitiveness to this. And, uh, you know, you use some pretty fun examples of like the cocoa business and that kind of thing. But the point being is a hundred years ago, uh, people who were, essentially felt pissed off and completely shut out of the system, started sending uh, mail bombs to uh, rich people. Uh, one guy got his, his maid, her arms blown off, and she picked up the package. There was a, I think it was a, it was 100 years ago, 19, yeah, about, well, roughly 100 years ago. Uh, anarchists set off a, a bomb on Wall Street, killed 30 stockbrokers. All of a sudden, the rich people got religion. They're like, wait a second. We can't have what we're doing here because 
this is now physically harming us. And and well, something if you, similar. If you look at the the ethnic composition of a lot of those quote unquote anarchists. Uh, it, it's not exactly clear that that was sort of indigenous uh, American sentiments, uh, but the well, point is taken. Were fellow fellow anarchists, anarchists, well, if you're talking about what I think you're talking about, it, it, that was following the wake of the uh, Sacco and Vanzetti incident. Yeah, and they, 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 they also some labor guys blew up the Los Angeles Times. You know, there was a lot of unrest, and you know, of course, labor unrest and, and that sort of thing. But the point being is that. You know, all of a sudden, the reality came to rich people's doorsteps and they woke up and said, wait a second, this is a problem. And I, I wonder if that isn't going to be part of this. You know, there was a crazy woman who uh, went bonkers and blew, uh, shot up YouTube a few years ago. I forget. She was like Iranian or something because they, they demonetized her channel or something. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, if you're working at YouTube, it, how many of these does it take before all of a sudden you're going to look at your bosses and say, hey, wait a second, before I execute the policies that you want, how are you going to protect me? And, and this is probably something that will happen to these big oligarchs is that because so much of their economy, so much of their wealth comes from cost shifting. You know, that's another piece we didn't talk about. But cost shifting is a huge part of the modern economy and has been for a long time. That's why immigration, trade, trade is nothing, really nothing but cost shifting. And but eventually those costs are going to have to come back home. You know, if, if Google and Microsoft are going to be power centers, well, then they're going to have to have the cost of being a power center because the United States government isn't going to be able to protect them anymore. And so, that you know, there, there's going to be some kind of back and forth a little bit on this. But we saw a glimpse of this. Look at how tough the French got all of a sudden on Islam when that one, uh, those guys went and shot up that, uh, uh, that arena where uh, one of the French politicians was at. All of a sudden, the French political class said, hey, wait a second, these guys can get to us. We now have to get a little bit more serious about this problem. And, and, and you know, that's that's I mean, I'm not obviously hoping for this, but I, I suspect that something like that's going to happen. There's going to be a real threat to our ruling class or, or our financial class or our technology class, whatever you want to call these guys. And, and they're going to get the sense that, oh, my God, this is a problem. We have to do something. But right now, you know, they're they're living a consequence free life. And, you know, it's uh they, they don't have to worry about it. And you could bet that those tech guys were just laughing all over themselves on the way back in their private jets about how they pushed around all this congressman today. I think that that's actually, uh, you know, just to put on my conspiracy hat, which I don't know how many levels of conspiracy hat I'm on right now, but it sure helps if you distribute your entire globally uh, already fairly distributed workforce uh, in the run-up uh, to a incredibly politicized election that you're massively interfering with uh, through some pretext away from your extremely locatable and extremely physically vulnerable physical facilities in the San Francisco Bay Area. <laughs> I'll just toss that out there. Yeah, I, I, no, I don't. I, 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 you could probably do multiple shows on the lunacy of the COVID-19 stuff. Uh, it's... Uh, I actually I did I did some research on um, I, for a, a paper that was actually published on uh, the Spanish flu. So I, I, it's one of those things. I did some podcasts on it too. It's one of those topics I I, I know a bit about. And um, again, you could probably do at least two more hours on just the, the lunacy of uh, COVID nineteen policy. I I don't know. I I can't get that conspiratorial to think that that these people are this deliberately stupid. But you never know. I mean, they're really smart. So. I think that was possibly a happy side effect of the whole COVID thing, that they get to uh, arrange their physical plant in a way that does not raise as many red flags. What do you what do you think about 
maybe I'll ask this to all of you. So as we see with you know the evolution of the American economy into transactionalism, uh, why is it then that we see a relative dearth in strong credit for the vast majority of Americans? Is it because we've shifted towards transactionalism and too what do you mean too- by strong credit? Uh, good credit scores, low debt, good investment strategies, good savings plans. I mean, recently, the last six months, the savings rate has jumped up back to World War II levels. But the last several decades, that that is sort of an aberration. The savings rate has been going down consistently. And so I maybe not credit, but the the strong financial position of the average American household or American unit. Uh, so why is it that in uh, an economy that is generating such wealth through transactionalism that that effect is not being seen for the majority of people? Is it because there's a there's a huge barrier cost to get to accessing that transactional economy and developing technology and methodology and enough capital to engage with it and actually see a meaningful return? Um, or is there something more insidious at play, or is it really just that uh, you, there is a level of intelligence required now in the economy that most people don't have, have never had, likely will never have, and the previous industrial revolutions sort of managed to help those people incidentally, and the future of the American economy just can't necessarily help the average person. Is, is it any of those? Is it a combination I, of them? I think it's the, well, the think latter one, has never been frankly. more available. The government is trying, and that, that's what the We need to maybe talk about the Fed for a moment if we get a chance. But the Fed has tried uh, to pump credit into the economy like it's never done before. Uh, a yeah. lot of uh, people were arguing back in 2009 that this TARP or 2008, whenever it was issued in Congress, this $700 billion bailout of the banks was like an egregious uh, misuse of taxpayer funds. If you look at the amount of money that the Fed has subsequently dumped into buying basically U.S. government debt, it's on the order of uh, almost like an order of magnitude more than that. It's probably well, we, four, we four trillion, you know, yeah, five we, trillion. Yeah, we transcended the debt. We're, we're buying ETFs and junk bonds now. Yeah. Yeah, which I thought was illegal, which I don't quite understand how they're pulling that off. I think they've like outsourced it again to like another company. BlackRock. It's a fun maneuver where uh, the, the Federal Reserve is uh, writing a check essentially to to the treasury and the treasury is undertaking it because I guess the treasury has unlimited authority to buy whatever they find politically, uh, politically useful as long as they, they scrape up the cash somewhere. I, I mean, yeah, I've called it public private piracy. You know, where the, where the uh, you know, what happens is that the, the government says, well, we're, we're restricted by law or by the constitution from doing something. So we'll contract with this outside firm and we'll 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 give them money, and they'll they'll go do that thing. You know, that's all that's all they get around every little. I mean, it really is quite incredible in a way. I, this whole BlackRock thing has anyone? I mean, I I don't really follow it that closely, but has a single politician piped up and said maybe there's a problem here? I don't think so. Well, you you yeah. definitely don't want to do that. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's just a a canonical no win scenario because if you set a political objective of literally buy anything with a price tag associated with it at par 
I mean, you can't literally nationalize the entire economy. So you've got to buy something. And if there's some intern at the Fed deciding what to buy, they're going to get their asses handed to them. So, of course, like, I mean, even even gigantic financial firms, if your goal is I would like to buy 10 percent of Nike because I've got however many billion dollars uh, of financing lined up and I'm going to try to take them over and go in strong and own 10 percent of the company. You don't just go to E-Trade and like place an order for 10% of Nike, you contract with a bank, you pay them a fee to structure the transaction so that ideally you don't distort the price so much right. that it becomes prohibitive. And this isn't just for large takeovers. This is for you know pension funds that they decide, oh, we're a $10, tri- well, $10 billion pension fund we want to switch from 50% bonds to 60% bonds. So you're moving around a billion dollars and you can't realistically do that unless you figure out, okay, well, what the fuck do I buy? Like I know the asset class that I've decided on. So it, I mean, it makes sense that they would contract if they're going to do this stupid fucking policy of buying everything that moves and a lot of stuff that doesn't move. Uh, you're going to need to hire somebody to do that for you. Like, I don't understand why they chose just one company. It would make the hugest amount of sense to hire like a half dozen different companies and have them all take a slice of this and have them all, you know, be checking each other's work to some extent. Uh <laughs> Yeah, it's absolutely insane that there's just one particular company that essentially controls the allocation of capital for the entire fucking United States economy. That's absurd. Um, but the notion that you would, again, hire a specialist and outsource something that you don't want to be in the business of makes sense. But, I mean, Adam, to your original question, uh, like the amount of credit that your average consumer has access to is just absolutely insanely huge it's it's bigger than it's ever been i mean there's a distinction between the amount of credit that's available and sort of the the you know the inputs to that like the amount of savings vehicles that are uh, available is also just huger than it's ever mm-hmm. been but the question is like okay well where does the money come yeah. from at the end of it everybody's major asset uh is their their job, their uh, physical and mental labor, their human capital. And the question, like, you can be making 10% returns year after year after year, but if you're only able to sock away, you know, a thousand a year, because that's how much you have left over after everything else, you know, despite a world historically uh, average beating performance, uh, you're not really going to have that much uh, money available at the end of your working career. So, I mean, the real question is how do you increase the value of the American workers' human capital? How do you increase wages? And how do you uh, give them a more secure working position so that they're not, for instance, trapped in some a uh, job that uh, maybe doesn't pay the most, they can maybe make more elsewhere, but then they would lose their health insurance. And so they can't afford from a risk perspective to go into business for themselves. So, I mean, these are all things that have pretty obvious solutions. Um, 
as far oh, as really, uh, <laughs> what are they? Well, well you, you brought up you, you limiting the labor supply would raise wages. That seems pretty obvious. That was Trump's entire campaign platform. Oh, sure, uh, sure, yeah, yeah. Increase the moving, price of labor. Yeah. Health insurance uh, either into the private sector. I mean, conceptually, Obamacare wasn't a bad idea, although it was really badly implemented. Right. Uh, there are a lot of ways that you could restructure the. Um, the healthcare market so that it's not tied to your employer and you could probably reduce costs if you could just, you know, wave a pen and impose a policy instead of having every healthcare industry grifter uh, take a cut and get a carve out along the way. But I mean, of course you can't do that. So uh, you're left in a situation where the only way to change the, uh, change the system is for there to be an immense amount of destruction to the arrangements that already exist. Well, you know, the, the paradox that you're bringing up with, you know, the credit worthiness on average of a typical American is probably lower today than it's ever been. I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know for sure, but I, I would bet that that's probably true or at least near that. But yet the amount of credit available to them yes. has never been higher. And yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was interested in. I mean, is I don't I don't really understand. I, There's so much liquidity no, sloshing I, around the market. Here's the reason. So much credit available. See, here's the reason, though. It's that demand for transactions. They, they, let's take General Motors. Uh, I, I love General Motors because uh, in 10 years, I don't think they'll be uh, in business. But It's a, it's a shit company, honestly. If you, yeah. if you go into their dealerships and you see how they're structured, people are like, oh, I hate this job. And it's like, it's just nobody looks happy. Well, here's, here's what's going on there. Because they're, they're like the kings of subprime car loans. So, okay, General Motors needs to build cars transaction need to sell cars transaction so they 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 wanted to uh, have really easy credit but see they don't really want to hold the credit and they don't have to because there's somebody out there who has a demand for car loans transactions they'll bundle them up and they sell them off and other transaction more transactions so there's this big sucking sound in the in the uh, financial system constantly wanting more and more credit which allows them to create more transactions more synthetic financial instruments i mean you think about it there's smart guys you know this, the old joke is that there's in every uh, every bank there's an army of chinese quants sitting around coming up with really complex mathematical models that they call a an investment instrument because that's really what they are and and so the you know they're they're all the, the the juice that the electricity of the system is credit so all of a sudden that guy who uh you know doesn't really have great credit he can go down and buy a car on a subprime loan and the, the car dealership, they don't care because the car's off the lot. Good for them. The GE capital doesn't care. GE capital, uh, 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 general motors, whatever their car credit arm is called these days. They don't care cause they're, they're turning around selling that thing off. And, uh, before long, it probably ends up in, in the feds balance sheet. <laughs> they probably end up on a car loan. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and it's because this is a demand for transactions. It's a, it's a strange thing because at some point, you know, no tree grows to the sky. If you if you go and look up the amount of outstanding credit in the world, and then try to you know people calculate the actual asset value of everything on Earth, there's more credit floating around than asset values. You know that that spread can't continue forever. So it, that's why I think you know some sort of you know they call uh, we have words like bankruptcy and contraction, but they're really just forms of collapse. So I, I think at some point you know the the plate stops spinning and. Something really ugly happens. Um, you know, we have a long, long depression. You know, um, what was it, 1860, 1871 to 1894, something like that, the long depression? Yeah. I, I think that to Hans's question, why is there this disconnect between the 
demand and supply. Uh, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one, we just went through a, and I don't know what this is because they, this is supposed to be the, the second great depression or something, but stock market keeps breaking records. I think that's a lot of manipulation, just side note, personal opinion. But I think the official financial crisis of 2008 and nine uh, put a lot of pressure on the uh, the lending uh, desks of a lot of institutions that they had to actually have uh, better controls on giving out these loans. Now, no question, there's still a lot of uh, illegitimate uh, loans being underwritten. I would imagine, you're, given your analogy of what happens in these car dealerships and just seeing some of the people that drive these cars, I'm like, I don't have as nice a car as this guy, and this guy looks like a moron, and, and how did he get financing for this thing? So I'm sure there's a lot of overdoing it. But what I really think the, the real problem is, okay, there was... A, a, a relaxing of the standards in the 90s, 80s, 90s uh, for giving out these loans. It, I think, ultimately resulted in the blowup that we saw in 2008. Uh, but I think underlying the problem, though, is not whether the, the Fed or the FDIC or whoever is governing these banks didn't put the, the period in the right place in the, or the decimal point in the right place on the spreadsheet. I think the real problem is that the economy and the society has become just so complicated that the average guy cannot keep up. And that's why he has a shitty credit score. It's not that the, the system is, is unfair to him, like they thought, you know, with the blacks or something. It's just these guys, they, they're not smart enough. And that, that's what Hans was saying in his, his sort of last uh, theory to answer his own question. I, I just think that there's just a, a such a premium placed on IQ, whether it's moral or not is another question. But given how automated much of manual labor has become, there just really isn't a place for a lot of these people. I mean, we used to have, um, I have a statistic on General Motors since we're talking about it. The number of people that worked in General Motors um, peaked, uh, in, again, 1979 at 853,000. That's a huge number of people. Today, it is less than, I think, less probably less than 200,000. I have numbers from 2007, which was right before the blow-up, so that was 266,000. So we're talking about a reduction of possibly more than eight times in employment, uh, or excuse me, four times, four times, so 200,000 versus 800,000. And you still have a company that churns out a lot of cars, and it's probably less than it used to. So let's say the the market share has definitely gone down, but in terms of average sales, annual sales, uh, it probably has gone down maybe by 30% or something, maybe f even 50%, but you still have a, at least a 2x reduction in the number of people required or at least employed in that operation. And the reason is because the engineers and the managers have figured out a way to get rid of that guy's job. And that guy is now either sitting on a union pension fund, or if he wasn't lucky enough to get involved in that, he's on welfare or dealing drugs or doing drugs or working in a crappy service job that just doesn't pay the bills. He's just been displaced. He's been outcompeted. And I think this is fundamentally the problem with a lot of society today is just that we have advanced so far, we, but the technology and the systems have advanced so far that there's just not a demand for a lot of labor anymore. The United States has a real unemployment rate of something like 30%. And they, they rejiggered it in the 80s because things were getting a little bit scary to the, the, the politicians and that the people who had a job was 
going down. And so they redefined the unemployment number to be the people who are looking for a job but can't find one. People just have given up. Yeah, I will say, like, there's plenty of demand for labor. Like, there's, it's, the amount of labor that's available to do stuff is a lot. (laughs) Most of the people who, quote unquote, aren't looking for work, it's with the expectation that there is no suitable work that's available. But there's huge sectors of the economy that people are just regulatorily prevented from engaging in. There are huge sectors of the economy that uh, are essentially prevented um, either through cost structure problems or through government policy uh, from hiring workers that they would like to hire if they could sort of absolve themselves of the uh, uh, problems that are entailed by having a uh, employee and entering into this quasi feudal relationship, as far as places like the state of California is concerned, uh, on both ends uh, with these uh, employees. I mean, there's uh, in a lot of rural areas there is actually a labor shortage, and there's kind of a chicken and the egg problem well, that, where that's because people leave and they try to go to the big right, city, right. And this is like these are structural problems where if you don't have enough uh, economies of scale in uh, some of these areas, yeah, like it doesn't make sense for somebody to move out to someplace and make eight bucks an hour uh, being a farmhand or something uh, with all of the expenses entailed in actually moving, destroying your existing social capital networks. Uh, and so on and so forth. But there are policies that would be able to unlock some of that labor flow and make some of people who are now honestly just completely stuck uh, in urban areas just because that's where at least the uh, the dole and the social support systems are, uh, that would make them available or would raise wages in rural areas or in sectors of the economy that currently uh, could make use of workers. It's funny, as I listen to you guys talk, you know, one thing, if you step back and you, you listen to all this, is that uh, we're, we're talking about all these weird contradictions. You know, how is it for, you know, go back to the beginning, you know, uh, there's the creditworthiness of the typical person buying cars is lower, but yet the credit options for them are much better. And, you know, this, this, you can replicate this all over the place. Like, for example, we right now we're having in several major cities right now in Portland and Seattle, I guess they qualify as cities, uh, uh, riots, right? These ongoing riots. And I mean, I don't know if riots, unrest, whatever you want to call it, but the people who are doing this are spoiled middle-class rich kids. They're bourgeois radicals, you know, and, and some, you know, they have some, uh, ornamental, uh, uh, vibrancy there to make it look good, but they're, they're doing okay. I mean, they're really, I mean, their, their life isn't bad. I mean, yeah, sure. They, they don't like the fact they have college debt and they, you know, whatever, but the people who actually do suffer like, uh, in Appalachia, which really does have serious problems with a lack of jobs, lack of work, lack of medical care, lack of lots of things. They're not writing, uh, industrial workers who are laid off in, in this part of the uh, country. And there's, you know, the, here in uh, the mid Atlantic, a lot of stuff got shut down. There's people not rioting. There's no unrest. There's no protests on the other stuff. I mean, why not? I mean, and, and frankly, we, we've shut the economy down for four months. 
how is it continued to run? Why is the stock market at 27,000? <laughs> you know, you can keep doing this over and over again. There, there's a piece of the puzzle that's missing. And a piece might be just time that a lot of these problems can be ignored because they, you know, they're, they're, the time hasn't come for them to be a problem. They haven't forced themselves to the front of, of the line. And and I, I, th- I think we're headed for in the next decade, you know, kind of circling back to the sort of predictions and, and um, you know, what comes next. I, I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's as, as exhausting as it is, this constant churn, this constant turmoil. And, you know, I, I don't think I'm alone in thinking it's exhausting. I think it's just the beginning. I think we're going to go through this is this, this way it's going to be all the time. You know, B- Biden will win probably in November and then he'll, we'll go through this crisis where he has to be replaced because he's they keep finding him wandering out on the White House lawn in his bathrobe. You know, and and, and it's just going to be one thing after another after another. We're just going to go from one crisis to another. If you, if you guys ever read um, uh, Gay, uh, Guillaume Fay, um, the, um, the the futurism guy, um, yeah, archaeo futurism. Yeah. Convergence of catastrophe. Yeah. I mean, he, that was one of the things he talked about is that in this interregnum period, it, it would just be crisis after crisis after crisis. And it, it really is kind of creepy because it does sort of feel that way. You know, the four years of, uh, of Trump have just been one crisis after another. And, and, and that this may be the new normal. Well, what do you guys think about the potential future for you know, financial markets continue to become uh, more uh, commodified, you know, th- there's a there's an increasing reliance on transactional gains at the investment bank level to subsidize, uh, you know, subprime lending for a variety of consumer goods because the industrial economy continues to collapse or is, uh, you know, hampered by health restrictions. Uh, you know, wh- how do you think that ultimately uh, this plays out? You know, d- does it? evolve into a, a more general American consensus that we have to refocus on an investment-based economy, on a capital investment-based economy, on an infrastructure-based economy, you know, go back to the drawing board like in the 1890s and turn of the century and, you know, how do we define the new American political economy? Um, you know, it's sort of in the middle of the progressive era. You know, how, how do we really define what it is to have a political economy, a cohesive industrial policy? Or do you think that the average American at this stage is just not capable of understanding financialization, understanding the problems, and you know doesn't really even have enough of a grasp for what would be good for them to demand from their leaders, maybe to even form their own new leaders to try and attain a more balanced uh, financial standing for the United States and a, and a more balanced political economy that uh, has checks and balances and actually has real investment grade quality in the goods and services it produces rather than transactional opportunities that, you know, sort of a, every company, a hedge fund mentality. I would, uh, recommend the book, uh, the coming of neo-feudalism, a warning to the global middle class by, uh, Joel Kotkin. Uh, I'm, I don't think that it's necessary for people to understand, uh, quote unquote, uh, a system in its intricate contours to recognize that it's not working for them. Um, But I do think that there will be increasing manipulation of the financial system in a way that uh, amounts to a more explicit transfer of wealth uh, away from uh, current real property owners. 
um, the people who actually own the physical assets, not the uh, the paper assets necessarily, but to uh, cause things like a combination of depreciation of their uh, their real assets by limiting the uh, the retail market for them, inflating away their uh, savings and providing uh, large amounts of free capital to insiders that are going to attempt to buy them up. Essentially, in many respects, a replay of our early 1990s uh, Russia um, with the associated rise of a, a politically hostile oligarchy. Uh, I think that it's it's really not uh, very promising uh, in the short term as far as you know, anticipated policy responses because so many of the policy responses are under the control of people that are completely beholden to these financial uh, interests. And so really the, <laughs> the, the only ways that result in a transformation of that uh, system, unfortunately, don't look particularly peaceful. Yeah, I... Oh, sorry. Uh, I keep screwing around with my mute button. But, uh, yeah, you know, the one thing that yeah, we didn't talk about that is going to play a role. You know, some, uh, one of you guys touched on a little bit about the advance of technology. And, you know, clearly, the you know, the threshold for participating in a middle class way in the economy is higher because of the more technological society. But that's really racing along in the financial system. And, and I'm, I'm, almost, I'm a little surprised it hasn't happened a little faster. And I think there's some inertia involved. But the sophisticated trading programs that are now in place, and and and, all, and of course the, the the software that's available and the resources that are available, and it's only getting faster uh, to do things like price discovery. You know, if you remember, I don't know how old you guys are, but in the early days of uh, these computerized chess games, you know, a somewhat fun thing to do if you're into these sort of things is have them play each other. And of course, they just they didn't always play to a draw, but often they did. And you know, because it was just based on probabilities, you know, and the this is what's going to happen in the financial system is that you know right now you make money because of informational asymmetry but as the more and more of the robots take over in all aspects that goes away because they'll have absolute price discovery you know there's no reason for anyone to ever do anything uh, without certain knowledge and so there's gonna be a lot less people in it and there's gonna be a lot less people who could profit from it so you know we we, we may and i think you know, that's one piece of this puzzle that, that uh, will, will come into focus in the next, you know, 10 years is that we might reach a piece, a part where there is no real more money to squeeze out of this current set of arrangements. You know, you can't spin the wheel faster and, and, and make more money and you can't find niches and in, in, uh, in imbalances to to exploit. You can't, you know, arbitrage certain information that other people don't have. And so there'll be no more, no more opportunities to really make money. You know, the only guys who will get rich are the guys who who have total control of the system, you know, and, and they'll be able to skim from it continually for a while. But, you know, technology is going to eat into our oligarchs as well. It's going to make them less um, – it's going to limit their ability to exploit the system. And I, I don't know what happens after that, but I, I, I think in the next 10 years we'll see a lot of that that start to show up. Don't forget, it was the NSF that C4 the statue in the first place. UNATCO's here to put the pieces back together. Ask me, I think the government did it. They want people to think the NSF are terrorists. I think the government made the plague on purpose to get rid of the population growth. Number one, in 1945, corporations paid 50% of federal taxes. Now they pay about 5%. 
Number two, in 1900, 90% of Americans were self-employed. Now it's about 2%. The entire executive branch is hand-picked. 19 of the last 23 U.S. presidents have been members of the Trilateral Commission. The Trilateral Commission is financed by the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds. Did you ever ask what it's for? The surveillance? The police? The shoot-on-sight laws? Is that freedom? The more of us you kill, the more that secessionism lives in the hearts of the people. Ever wonder why big car companies pay 2% tax while the guys on the assembly line pay 40? Corporations are so big you don't even know who you're working for. That's terror. Terror built into the system. Need I remind you that in the case of a national emergency, FEMA has a list of 6 million Americans who will be transported to detention centers? Your tabloids call it RX-84. Yeah, including the President, Congress, and the Supreme Court. In my position, I find it very easy to add names to that list. The whole project of world government, going back to the League of Nations, has been funded and manipulated mainly by wealthy bankers. Remember that the UN itself was built on land donated by John D. Rockefeller. The wealthy have always been the ones to profit from one world government. The United Nations' secret goal... Well, this is David Rockefeller's description from a half a century ago. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers. Everything's so compartmentalized. Kaczynski was right about the division of labor. I'm given that much. Who puts the pieces together? Someone who makes a lot more money than we do. The West's so afraid of strong government, now has no government. Only financial power. Our governments have limited power by design. Rhetoric? You believe it? Don't you know where these slogans come from? Well-paid researchers. How do you say it? Think tanks? Funded by big businesses. What is that? A think tank? Privately funded propaganda. The Trilateral Commission in the United States, for instance. People know the government has a vaccine. Riots everywhere. The same corporation that makes Ambrosia also manufactures the virus. Quite convenient. They're infecting people on purpose, huh? Executive Order 109090. It lets us take over all modes of transportation. FEMA can do that? If the president declares an emergency, Executive Order 109095, we can take over the media. All of it? Any and all. Executive Order 109097, we can take command of natural resources. RX-84. What's that? One of the plans. You haven't heard of RX-84? Uh-huh. FEMA takes over the highways, police, airports, media, the armed forces. But they still report to the president, right? Not until the end of the emergency. That's for efficiency. Also, they have plans on the books to arrest 5 million Americans the day the emergency is declared. Terrorists? Immigrants, mostly. But also anyone the FBI has been watching. I have seen it since I was a girl. The plotting and scheming of corporations to make Europe into one big country with no separate languages, cultures, or tastes. It's more than Europe they plan to unify. Some people just don't understand the dangers of indiscriminate surveillance.